there's a lot around that. We weren't just going in to like make everybody smile and make it look really good on film. In fact, we weren't photographing anybody's faces or identifying features when we were in there, but we knew that when the football players would generate some sort of conversation on topics that these young people may have discussed with a counselor, a teacher, a trusted adult throughout their lives, that our football players could have more of an influence and more of an impact in that moment in decreasing the rate of recidivism for these youth than maybe 10 years of therapy could. As strange as it sounds, and you, you said this earlier, Chris, it's there is a fervor that goes along with fandom where you start to look up to people as if they are heroes. And so something that you will hear me say all the time, I was at an event yesterday and I said it three different times, if you have a platform, if you're going to be looked upon as a hero, it's up to you to figure out what you're gonna do with that. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold, say yes to adventure, say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddle Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Today, we have Joanne Pasternak, who most assuredly is an expert in the experience of being human. She it was a vice president of community relations for the Golden State Warriors, executive director of the Warriors Community Foundation, and vice president and executive director of community relations for the 49ers Foundation. She currently is president and CEO of Oliver Rose, uh, which is a high-touch consultancy focused on amplifying impact and inspiring change. Also, Athletes Voices co-founder, chief development officer, strategy officer, Athletes Voices provides elite athletes with the tools to leverage their high-influence platforms to impact issues of importance globally, nationally, locally, and personally, ensuring that their voices aren't just heard in the moment, but are the catalyst or spark for a movement. Joanne's been involved in sport, in sport, social responsibility, and philanthropy throughout her career. And this is going to be an interesting conversation. Joanne, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. And on top of all that, I have a 16-letter name. So, you know, we're... <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a good start, Chris, but I'm thrilled to be here and excited to talk with you about any and all subjects today. No, this is going to be really fun. And the voice is, is something that I want to get to, the mm -hmm. athletes' voices. But talking about the idea, because I think so many of us have seen professional sport. Mm -hmm. We know the sport side of it. But there's so much else that goes on in sport. And so it's being in sports, social responsibility and philanthropy, what exactly does that mean? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, it's not something I knew existed when I was growing up, but I was exposed to it at a fairly young age, actually. And so when you think about what brings people together and what brings disparate populations together, sport is really at the top of that list. When you're sitting in a stadium and your team is on the field and there's somebody sitting next to you and they have a jersey for your team as well and your team scores, what do you do? You turn, you high five, you go, whoa, like you have no idea who that person is, what car they drive, what their background is. Do they have a criminal record? Like no idea. They're just somebody who's rooting for the same team. Well, leveraging that and being able to take that fervor that people feel for their teams and create momentum around 
issues that are existing in our world where we can close a gap and create opportunities for those who maybe have been marginalized in the past is what social responsibility in sports is all about. It's taking the very large platform and then leveraging that platform to be able to bring visibility to issues that are important in our world. And it could be anything. It could be environmental degradation. It could be Black Lives Matter, um, juvenile diabetes, whatever it might be. Um, we have an opportunity to bring more visibility by putting it into a stadium, into an arena, on TV, and to just increase visibility. So people are emotionally connected to you through the team. They're they, on your they side. They are. They are, and it's it's funny because they are very emotional about it. Um, in fact, funny story. So I was with the San Francisco 49ers for nine seasons, and during one of our years where we were headed towards Super Bowl, uh, I was going to the grocery store. I was wearing Niners gear, as I always did, because you wear team issued gear all the time. And I'm still a diehard so, Niners. So a fan. helmet and oh and yeah, a pads or what all of it, wear? all of it, all five foot three and three quarter inches of me was like suited up. No, I honestly, I had a hoodie on, and I'm walking into Safeway, and this gentleman goes, "Go Niners." And I said, thanks. And then I thought, oh, he probably thinks that's weird because you're not supposed to say thanks. You're supposed to respond with go Niners. Like we're all part of this like Niners village. And, and because of that, we also recognize that there's great responsibility that comes with that. If you have that platform and you aren't using it, then what are the opportunities that are being missed to increase visibility around an issue? So we can think back to the go pink movement that was launched within the NFL where in the month of October in order to increase awareness about the importance of early detection for breast cancer uh, to help with recovery and, and with remediation, we had athletes wearing little swatches of pink and it became an entire clothing line and it raised millions and millions of dollars, probably more than millions and millions. But the most important stories that I heard during that time were ones where you would hear a story about somebody who was walking past the TV while their partner was watching football. And they'd say, why are the athletes wearing pink? And then, oh, well, I guess it's something with breast cancer. I should go schedule that mammogram. And we actually knew of women who had intercepted breast cancer because they had seen a pink moment happening on screen while they or their partners were watching the game. And so when you can have that much of an impact, like can actually move people to do something, it's really powerful. Well, it's also interesting too, because philanthropy sometimes sounds like it's just a giving thing. Yeah. But, but I mean, the pink movement in the NFL also brought a whole new demographic to football as well. So it was, so it was helping people, it was getting people to go to the mammograms, but yeah. it, it benefited the bottom line of the sport as well. How do you as teams... Mm -hmm. look at the, look at what you're going to do mapping out. Okay. What are we going to do in our community? Cause as you said, in the beginning, it's a disparate group in there yeah. that you yeah. might be right next to somebody who you're all cheering for the same team, but you're entirely different and might not agree on anything other than let's score a touchdown. Well, it, it's funny. What you're mentioning is being human. Like we are humans. We're all built differently. We all have different life experiences. We bring those with us wherever we go. My, my grandmother had some amazing expressions, which sounded a lot better in Yiddish, by the way, but one of them that she always said was, wherever you go, your, your tush goes with you. Um, and I, I think about that when you're going through this, this programmatic 
element space. Every year when the NFL schedule would come out, we'd take a look at the calendar and we'd say, okay, where are the awareness days? And where are we gonna plug in moments of impact throughout our schedule? But aligned with that, and this is the way that you can create sustainable philanthropic impact and sustainability around your social um, strategies, is we would look at where we had business partnerships as well. So if, for example, we're looking at the breast cancer awareness campaign and we have a partnership with Dignity Health, and Dignity Health is one of the largest screeners for breast cancer, and we can come together to bring women who are survivors of breast cancer, who had benefited from Dignity Health Services, together with this campaign and honor everything together, we're doing a couple things. So first of all, we're bringing visibility to the fact that these services are available in the community. We are honoring people who have gone through this journey and personifying a story that otherwise is just a statistic. Because when you see the women, you know that they've experienced something and you can relate to them and they might look more like you than you would have thought. And then the last part is, is that where does the funds, where does the funding come from for these activations? Um, the teams are doing them because it's the right thing to do. But I usually start with, okay, we, we know that it's the right thing to do, but now how do we make it fiscally viable for the long term so that the program that we're launching actually can continue longer than just if you were to write a check and make an investment. And so we want it to gain momentum and we want to show the efficacy of those programs too. So another example would be we did a lot of work around juvenile justice, uh, education within the juvenile justice system. And we would go to the local juvenile detention facilities each year with 49ers players to do football drills. Well, there's a lot around that. We weren't just going in to like make everybody smile and make it look really good on film. In fact, we weren't photographing anybody's faces or identifying features when we were in there, but we knew that when the football players would generate some sort of conversation on topics that these young people may have discussed with a counselor, a teacher, a trusted adult throughout their lives, that our football players could have more of an influence and more of an impact in that moment in decreasing the rate of recidivism for these youth than maybe 10 years of therapy could. As strange as it sounds, and you, you said this earlier, Chris, it's there is a fervor that goes along with fandom where you start to look up to people as if they are heroes. And so something that you will hear me say all the time, I was at an event yesterday and I said it three different times, if you have a platform, if you're going to be looked upon as a hero, it's up to you to figure out what you're gonna do with that. Cause it's not, you don't really have a choice, like you're, you're there. So go do something great with it. It's interesting. I think you're, you're making me jump ahead to a certain extent, but that's okay. Because it's in, it's interesting being an athlete, right? Being a professional athlete, because you talk about your hero. And, and are you a hero for a lifetime? Are you a hero for a moment? The window of opportunity for an athlete is really pretty small, pretty small in the scale of their lives, in the scale of the history. It, it is relatively small. That sense of being a hero can, can only last so long. And it's also, there's a tenuous element to that, that hero worship, right? That it's like, we love to build our heroes up and then we love to break them back, back down. And, and then if they come back, then they're a real hero kind of thing. And, and so, so it's also 
they need they need your help too because because they've not they've not gone through the situation any more than hey i'm good at what i do right and 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 and, and i like people or whatever you know i mean there are various other attributes but how did how were you able to to provide that support and what, uh, support and one of the things that you were talking about with the breast cancer part was was you have to make it personal mm-hmm. you have to take it from being statistics to being about an individual to being about your mother being about your sister being about someone who really you know your favorite teacher vulnerability it is. i mean it's, it's vulnerability you know and it's um it's interesting because i think another another part of being human is that we try to hide behind something that we think we're supposed to be. So now take that to the next level. And now you are a high visibility athlete. You have been told your whole life that you are the best athlete who ever came out of not just like your town or your city or your state or whatever, like you are the best because the only way you're making it to the highest levels of your sport is if you're the best who ever was. Now you're in your sport, you play for however many years. If you're in the NFL, it's two and a half, three years, maybe. I was a figure skater growing up, so I injured out when I was 16, 17 years old and then looked forward to what can I do with this thing that I've been training in for 12 years and my options were pretty limited, but it's part of you and it's actually how you've identified yourself and most likely how others have identified you as well. And so when you're out in the mountain, now you have people saying, oh, he's an ex 49er. Like, what does that mean? And, and where else in professional life, do you become less valuable with age and experience? It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing to think about. So you're like, oh, so you've been playing now for 10 years and you broke every record that ever was. I think we should cut you because there's somebody, always somebody faster coming up behind you, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about that, it's their first time being a hero. It's their first time going through every single one of these stages. And for many athletes, actually for all of us, it's not like we have somebody ahead of us who's on the exact same journey. So here's a real life example from yesterday. I was at an event and we had a number of 49ers players there and my son was there with me. My son plays uh, football. He, he loves it, flag football, but he's very competitive and very aggressive in how he plays. And he's a receiver. And on Friday night, he tweaked his foot and he ended up with a small fracture in his fifth metatarsal. So he's wearing a boot. One of the Niners wide receivers, an active player comes up to me and he goes, what'd you do? And my son says, well, you know, this is what I did. And he says, oh man, I had that happen to me and I had to have surgery and here was my recovery and he's going on and on. And I'm thinking, okay, he's sharing a lot with my 12 year old who might now be thinking that he has to get surgery, you know, but, but Actually, what it did when I got in the car, Reed looks at me and he goes, mom, so what Dante said made it sound like, you know, mine isn't as serious as his. That's great. So I think I'll be back in football pretty soon. And he, he was, made a really good point when he said, I need to rest up and take care of myself. And so like in that moment, yeah, the doctor had said that to my son two days ago, but Dante Johnson from the 49ers says it to Reed and Reed's like what he said, mom, like, great. I've only been saying this for 48 hours. Like, so when we, when we can take that, we can leverage it. Now, my kids obviously have a front row seat to these things. So part of what I do is I work with athletes to figure out how they can amplify their voice to the masses 
and to get to the people who need them the most versus the people who just happen to be in front of them. So while my son benefited from that moment, I will tell you that what I said after I went up to Dante and I was talking to him about some of, you know, what he's doing in his career right now and, and the stage that he's in. And I said, you know, you're amazing with kids. You're, you always know just how to come down and talk to them. What are you going to do with that? Like what's next for you? And so right there in the middle of this field at an event in Palo Alto, we had a conversation about what Dante's exploring and how he can take this unique ability he has to connect with kids, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, that kind of age group, and what does he want to do for the rest of his life to make something happen from those experiences he's had throughout his 10-year career in the NFL. So, so it's very personalized. It's very, um, it's very much like have a conversation, think about who that individual athlete is, where their capabilities are, what their individual story is, and then to also work with them so that they can feel like the world is welcoming of their story, as raw as it might be, as painful as it might be, who's here to listen. And so often I'll start off with something that's like a gentle landing place. So uh, another, actually another athlete I was with yesterday, he's a, a Niners legend and, and uh, won a Super Bowl back in the 90s. And, uh, and, and his career was cut short because of injury. And he found himself on a very common path of just self-destructive behavior because his whole identity was smashed in the same moment his knee was smashed. And he lost his marriage. He lost his foothold on his, his financials um, and, you know, drugs, alcohol, all of it. Like it's, it's like you could write some sort of ESPN special on it. But when he was at his lowest, he had a mentor from his playing days who came to him and said, I've got you, like, let's do this together. But for 10 years, he had hidden that and his struggle because he came back, right? He came back, he's clean and sober and he's got his kids in his life and he's close with his ex-wife and everything seems to be going well. But he thought if he told people that they would see him as weak. So the first place we went for him to share a story was to a men's shelter in downtown San Jose where there were, I think there were eight or nine men in the room who all had hit rock bottom and now were climbing their way up. And he shared his story and the men didn't judge him. In fact, what they did was they, they gave him big bro hugs and like, yeah, you got this, like you give me hope. And that was what we kept hearing was you give me hope. I believe because I've seen that what you can do and you had so many people watching you self-destruct that if I can do it, I'm in isolation here. Like I don't have a whole, you know, TV audience looking at me self-destruct, that I can do it too. And he's gone on to become one of the greatest advocates around rebuilding your life and, and what it means to kind of be at rock bottom and then slowly get back up. Um, and that, that's the kind of story that we leverage. It's, it's what makes you human, what makes you unique, and then why do you want to talk about it? What are the desired outcomes from that? So instead of treating it like uh, you know, photo ops and autographs, but saying, you know, yeah, that, that can be part of it, but who do you want to go to? Who do you want to speak to? And let's make that happen. It's interesting because you talk about sort of the reach that they, they can have in the community and how it fills the athlete as a human being and gives them purpose, right? This is, this is the why in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. 
But then as an athlete, you're also taught to have this laser focus and to be able to shut everything else out Mm -hmm. in order to do what you're supposed to do, in order to perform. How can you balance the two of these things within the mind of a current athlete? You know, it's, it's what makes athletes particularly well-suited to pursue this type of work is there is a natural inclination to be goal-oriented. So that's where I start. I start with what are your objectives? What is it you hope to achieve? And then let's work backwards and let's see what we need to do from a timeline perspective. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Gantt chart nerd. I love spreadsheets, but I can take it and say, where, are we go- where do you want to go? And if you know where you're trying to go, then we can start to walk from there. Um, but the interesting thing is that it's it's not so much digging into the competitive spirit as it, as it is digging into the, if you start something, make sure you're finishing strong. Like, what does that look like? What's your path? The hardest part is actually when, when a, somebody makes a misstep and they're like, Ooh. because as you said, your fans love you. They love you when you're great but you drop a pass, you're like a villain all of a sudden. Like, I mean, I, there's a, there was a moment at the Niners where we had a guy who inadvertently his foot touched a ball and it was still in play and it resulted in a turnover. And it was like all this stuff, he was getting death threats. And two weeks before he'd been the hero because he'd run the ball over the goal line. You know, I mean, it's like, So what's the, and people are also inclined, it seems, to look for heroes to fail or to fall. And so when you have this feeling like people are looking at you and thinking you're infallible, and then when you fail, they're actually celebrating that, that can be really daunting. So part of this is doing baby steps with it and saying, okay, let's start off with, we know what your goal is. You want to make a difference in this type of, you know, world. Uh, but let's talk about why, how, when, what, and then move forward along that path. But building out a strategy for impact helps to intercept that moment when you're thrust into the limelight without anticipating it. And in today's world, social media is almost required of influencers and high-profile individuals, and it's certainly of the teams. So if something happens and nobody's tweeting about it, then it's almost as if you're saying you're ignoring it, even though you might just be, I don't know, getting your hair done or something. Like you could be doing anything in the world, but you're, you're supposed to respond quickly. So how do we prep athletes and influencers for that moment when the spotlight is on them and whether they like it or not, they're gonna have to respond in some way. Well, I mean, it's interesting what you said though too, right? Because when the spotlight is on them, mm-hmm but then also when nobody's listening yeah. as well. So, yeah. so they're preparing them for both sides when all of a sudden all the lights are on them. Mm-hmm. And I haven't prepared for this moment. Right. I'm ready to, to carry the ball or do whatever I have to do. But all of a sudden you want me to talk about something. Yeah. And this is really scary. Or I'm here and I'm doing what my heart says to do and nobody seems to care. Well, it's interesting, Chris, because like, you know, analogize it to the sports that you and I do. Mm-hmm. So alpine skiing, figure skating, our sports are based on 
making a split second decision and then correcting if you're on the wrong edge. Right. I mean, really, yeah. literally. And, and so I think about it like in the world of figure skating, if I had a required element and I missed it in the first minute of my program as a 11, 12, 13 year old, I needed to have the mental faculties in place to be able to figure out how to throw it into the end of my routine so that I didn't have a mandatory deduction. Like that's pretty quick thinking. Now, when you when you think about that as you're doing, I mean, slalom is unique because of the DNF, but you know, you, you know, you get off course, you're 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 off course. But but it's a series of recoveries. Go. It's the right. same kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then but then what are you going to do at that moment? Like, are you never racing again? Are you always scared of the fourth gate? Or do you jump back up and go, you know what? I, I'm going to give this another go. And that is what athletes do. That's what competitors do is they, they say, I'm not giving up. I think my dog is making an appearance. Hello, Wes. Dog is making an appearance. I noticed yes. that. He just moved my door open. Um, Wesley feels like he should be podcast famous. So he- It is probably true. It, yeah. it, well, I hope you don't get upstaged really is what it comes well, to. I always will, I'm sure, but he'll start bonking me with his nose when he wants attention. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because one of the things with the athlete mindset is we know how to try something and then revise and try and revise and like keep tweaking it until you do have it perfect um, or as close to perfection as possible. And there's also the knowledge that you'll never get it fully perfect. So if you think about NFL players, for example, they're going out onto the field and they have a game plan. They know which play is going to be run probably, but maybe on the field, there's an audible or maybe something happens that was unexpected or a ball happens to, I mean, you think of fumbles, you know, recoveries, things like that. Like, what do you do with it? One of my favorite moments uh, at the Niners was when an offensive lineman, Joe Staley uh, actually had the ball, like literally like jumps into his arms and he's like, whoa, runs into the end zone. And then he did a touchdown dance. And it was, it was awesome and ridiculous. And I encourage everybody to look on YouTube to find it. Um, because in the moment, Joe was like, I, had, I hadn't really thought about what I would ever do if I ended up in the end zone and had an opportunity for a touchdown dance. And all of a sudden I find myself doing it. So that's kind of what we do, like thinking about it from the perspective of what you do on the field or on the court or on the ice or on the snow or whatever. And then taking that and moving it over to philanthropy, it's have a game plan, but also know how to flex into the moment when something unexpected happens. But for most athletes, what I found earlier in my career was that when the spotlight hit them, they were unprepared for what they might do to respond. So they didn't have a game plan in place. And you know, that's really with launching athletes voices. That's what we were looking to do is to help athletes develop playbooks, game plans to be able to respond and make an impact philanthropically. Now, will things come their way that they hadn't expected? Absolutely. But in that moment, now at least they have the foundation to know how to respond or what to do and have an understanding either historically or based off of seeing other athletes or their own game plan to know what might happen and how they can pivot to take advantage of a moment. 
it's it's always the hardest question I think for the athlete is to prepare because you're you're so in the moment, mm-hmm. and if you're in the moment, then you're most likely going to be successful. Right. But then the moment ends, and what is that next moment? And and the thing about the athletes' voices too is we sort of celebrate. I mean, like I have in the in the the frame picture next to me, I have. Tommy Smith and John Carlos are everything right here. (laughs) It's got to be around there somewhere, right? I mean, this is this is what I have. I I I also have my Bobby Orr, uh, you know, flying Mm -hmm. through the air. I I have that one as well. But but I have these guys, and and I grew up, you know, grew up in the seventies, and and like Muhammad Ali Mm -hmm. was probably the biggest voice in sport. But there's a there's a huge risk. I mean, looking at both of those examples, yes, the risk. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to get inducted into U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee Hall of Fame mm-hmm. in 2019. Tommy Smith and John Carlos got inducted the same year that I did, but they won their medals in Mexico City the same yes. year that I was born. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They waited a but, long- but we're and we're not even talking about what happened to Peter Norman, the guy in second place. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Who, Australian guy. Right. Yes, exactly. And and you know, he like he's actually one of my heroes because what he did was he said, Tommy and John actually gave him a heads up that this was going to be happening, that they were planning to make a political statement on the podium. But they recognized that it was his moment too, that he'd been working his whole life for this podium moment. And they didn't want to usurp that or take that away from him. And um, and he said to them, and, and you know, I've heard this directly from them and from their team, their advisor and, and others who have been involved with this. Um, he said, he said, you know, I it may not be my exact cause, but I will stand with you. I'll stand in solidarity. And he does. And if you look carefully at those pictures, you'll see that he has one of the buttons on his shirt. And when he went back to Australia, he was vilified. He was stripped of his medal. He was, um, he ended up having a shortened lifespan due to alcoholism and other things. I mean, it's very, it's been written about quite a bit. We couldn't get a job, couldn't, couldn't get a job. qualify for the next Olympics, right. even Divorce. though the fastest qualifying times. Right. All the things that you don't want to have happen, happen. And yet when it was, when he passed away, John and Tommy were his pallbearers, two of his pallbearers. And there's a statue. I live two blocks from San Jose State. There's a statue uh, that honors um, those gentlemen um, that's very close to my house. And the second place part of the podium is empty. And it's empty because Peter wanted it to be that way because he wanted to, his statement was anybody could have done what I did and anybody should. Like, can you see yourself standing up for something that matters in the moment and and knowing that there's a risk. But it's interesting because the risks are not the same for all athletes and we need to acknowledge that. And then what can we do as advocates and as the support network out there to accept and honor the fact that there's a risk that's being taken. And if that person is speaking up on behalf of a population that's been marginalized, whether they're a part of that population or not, being able to take a step back and say, okay, what is it they're putting on the line 
to amplify my voice as an ordinary person who doesn't have a Twitter following of millions. Uh, and it might not be exactly my voice, but is it moving something forward that can be of benefit to the larger population? But they're risking a lot. They're risking a ton. So in, in the Nike commercial, and this is, this is jumping way forward, but Colin Kaepernick said a couple of things that, that resonate with athletes, right? Calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Believing in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. I mean, this is, this is sort of the, 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 the list of, of what you're supposed to do as an athlete. Don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. And, and these are the things that, as an athlete, you're supposed to you're supposed to embrace, right? You're supposed to, to the 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 success is is judged oftentimes by the sacrifice. That are you willing to sacrifice enough? Because if you're not, someone else will take your place, and and you can be removed. And that's the that's a tenuous part of being an athlete, but it's also the tenuous part of being an athlete who has a voice. There, there are very few athletes who really have been in that position where they have a voice because they're moving in and they're moving out. And, you know, maybe the coach is moving in and moving out too, but most likely the ownership is staying there. The fan base is staying there. Your, your time is temporary. And so how is it the zero-sum game of the whole risk or is this is part of having athletes voices is is there a a better way of doing it without having to be an athlete who can who can who can dictate terms you know you look at like lebron james in some ways he's in a position to to dictate terms where a lot of other athletes are not in that position where they get moved out where you know where where, where Peter gets moved out in Australia, where, where Tommy and John don't have the opportunities that they might've had. We, so we, that's, that's the reason why Athletes Voices is looking to be inclusive of all athletes who are, have reached the elite levels of their sport and have the opportunity to use their voices. But, you know, one of the women who joined us at our convening is Cassidy Lichtman. Cassidy is a USA volleyball player She's actually the first woman to be elected to be the head of the USA Volleyball Players Association. She's awesome and incredible, but she's standing up for issues around pay equity, around uh, resources to support mental health and wellness and healthcare and all the things. And Cassidy, Cassidy is not earning LeBron James salary. She, and by the way, she's old enough to be at a stage where you're replaceable in sport. And so if there's an excuse to replace you, why wouldn't they? Especially if you're kind of making things churn a little bit. So yeah, there's tremendous bravery in doing that. Um, the interesting thing to me is that if you can build it out so that you find your micro cause that is most aligned with who you are and what you stand for or your personal experiences, then 
you can make a bigger difference in that micro cause than you could if you were like, I'm going to solve world hunger. Great. How about if we look at pipeline for fresh fruit in downtown LA? That sounds doable. Like now we can do this. And now you have an athlete who's from LA who maybe experienced food insecurity, who can partner up with an LA-based food chain, like wonderful food, you know, whatever. Um, you can partner up with them to help deliver resources to individuals at the community center where you grew up playing basketball. And now you're telling a story that is still getting a message across about the inequity of food distribution and food resources and the lack of access to fresh food, fruits, vegetables, and other foods in communities like downtown LA. But you're doing so in a way where it's putting yourself out there and saying, this is something I experienced, or this is something that somebody I loved experienced. And so that's why I'm leaning into this, into this moment. So again, if we take it, like, let's take a global issue, like humanitarian rights. When we lose sight of whose story we're telling, then it starts to feel like we're speaking in platitudes as opposed to actually talking about something that is, is real and is in the moment. And it's funny because when I'm, when I'm sharing stories, I do refer to things about my kids or my grandmother or whatever. I've done that like five times already in this, this conversation, but it's, it's because that's my everyday life. And, and by the way, you know that that's not a fabrication or exaggeration. Like this is what's happening because it happened to me directly. And so I'm not going and talking about something that is somebody else's story or life to own, but I can still be in solidarity with them and express my support or my appreciation or, you know, be there to back them up. And I, and I think when you look back to seminal moments in athlete advocacy, what you see is that there was somebody who had to take a stand and then slowly others came on board until the thing that they took a stand for no longer seemed controversial. So take Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, Eli Harold. They take a knee, the world is like, oh my God, what's going on? Like they're, I mean, all three of those gentlemen were unemployed fairly soon after, um, unemployed by the NFL, I should say. And yet, if you look at what happened last season, this isn't that many seasons later, by the way, Chris. Last season, before every game, they're playing the Black National Anthem before every game. They're wrapping the goalposts in hashtag Black Lives Matter. Like it's, it's a totally different conversation and it's no longer controversial. Now it's mainstreamed. And if you aren't doing it, then you're the outlier. So, I mean, I look, I think about Stonewall. I think about, you know, all these moments where somebody took a stand and said like, that's not okay. Like you have to be the first. Um, and that's the scariest part. Now, athletes are perfectly suited to be the first, because as you said, we are raised to believe that anything's possible, to push ourselves harder, faster, to be stronger, um, to do things that seem impossible. I was, I was reading an article this morning, Nathan Chen, figure skater, was named one of the time most influential people. And, um, you know, he he did not perform well at his first Olympic games. And then he spent the next four years figuring out how to get stronger, faster, better. And then he set a new standard for quadruple jumps when he showed up at the Olympics this year. 
So now you have a guy who went from like off the podium to doing more quadruples than anybody could have ever imagined was possible. Now let's take that Nathan Chen mindset. Now, when Nathan gets out into the professional world outside of figure skating at some point, and he's deciding he wants to be an investment banker or realtor or whatever, and he, he doesn't get that first deal or he doesn't make money off of that first investment, he's not the type of person who's going to give up. And I know that. And that's why when I'm in a position to employ people, I love employing athletes of all kinds. I don't care whether it's volleyball or para downhill skiing. Like I know something about you because you got knocked down and you had to get back up again and you didn't give up. It's the nature of sport, right? You put yourself in a position to get knocked down mm-hmm. and, and to get knocked down repeatedly. Yeah. But also to be that lightning rod. I mean, you talked about Colin being being that lightning rod and, and to have, have the president say, get that son of a bitch off the field. Who's going to be the first owner to fire him to say, get him out of here. I guarantee that that owner will be the most popular person in the country. And, and, you know, cause, cause in a lot of ways, I mean, I mean, you can understand the, the effort I think from Colin was, was really to, 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 to make a protest, mm-hmm. but, but to start a conversation yeah. Yeah. as well. And that conversation didn't really happen. We're seeing, we're seeing some of the outcome of that conversation now, but, but to be the head of the snake effectively and, and get your head lopped off yeah. is, it is the hardest part and how, how as, as a voice, because I mean, it's the same thing with Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with, I mean, Muhammad Ali went through, you know, lost the, the, the peak of his career. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading some story where, where Joe Frazier, his greatest rival had to pay like his hotel tab mm-hmm. somewhere and, and help this guy out. And, but yet he's the, he's the greatest ever. Well, I look at it. I mean, I'll going to figure skating today, but Rudy Galindo, who was best, best known, I think as uh, Christy Yamaguchi's Paris partner for many years. And then he went on to actually win a national title. Uh, but he was growing up in figure skating during a time when the men were being told to be more masculine. And Rudy is a member of the LGBT community. Rudy is an awesome, awesome coach, awesome human, great son, brother, friend, you know, all the things. And yet he was trying to fit into a mold that was a misfit for him at the time. And when he finally just went, you know what? I'm just gonna go do this. That's when he won nationals on his own with his unique style all his flair and his awesomeness. And I, I think about it when, when I was growing up, one of my very good friends um, who was a figure skater and was a male and he was gay, he took his own life because he didn't feel like there was a place for him. And then just, you know, in the last five years, the sport has embraced that side of artistry that is part of what makes the sport so spectacular. 
And I, I think about sometimes like when I'm listening to Johnny Weir do commentary or, you know, other folks who are stepping forward and being like, I'm just me. I think back to those days in the 80s and 90s when Rudy and Brian Boitano and my friend were struggling to figure out where they fit into a world that wasn't really wanting them to be there. And that's what the, the tides of change look like, but they didn't give up um, because again, anybody who can throw themselves out there and, and do a sport at the highest levels is likely to do the same thing with all things. But you need to stop and understand who they are and what their causes are. When I first got to uh, the Niners, it was kind of like, uh, did you ever play Mad Libs when you were growing up? Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. So my mom's a librarian, which means that Mad Libs was a part of our everyday life, all word games. Um, but, you know, I, I often think about it like it's Mad Libs. You know, you have this fill in the blank, like proper noun, verb, whatever. So if you aren't familiar with Mad Libs, you basically flip it over and you just fill in the blanks with different prompts based off of grammatical, you know, annotations. Right. And then in my case, my little brother, my little sister would fill in things and then they would read this whole story back to you that sounded ridiculous because it would literally be like, you know, Johnny was, you know, pooping and then he stepped on an ant and you're like, what does that mean? It makes no sense because there's no context. Now, if we do the same thing, we just throw random player names into social impact strategies and we're like, okay, Chris, you're going to go to the food insecurity event and, you know, Bob, we want you to go over to the homeless shelter and then, you know, whatever. Well, it, it may be that like you get there and, and you're, you're there and you're helpful and you're excited to be engaged, but are you really connecting on a visceral level with it? Now, if instead I said, Chris, and by the way, not going to the obvious, I shouldn't assume that I know everything about you and what you would want to focus on philanthropically because I know one or two things about you, or I can see you in front of me. And I say, oh, Chris, as somebody who uses a wheelchair, would you like to go and speak about resiliency after injury or whatever? Cool, that might be one of the things you talk about, but uh, what if instead I'm like, Chris, let's talk about all the things and which area do you think you could or you would like to be an influencer? Yeah. I mean, maybe I wanted to be a librarian and, yeah. and I want to talk about reading. Absolutely. And, and what about the joy that reading brought you? I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I never, I haven't thought about it like this, but um, I was in a car accident when I was very, very little. And one of the things that made it sort of bearable for me, I was in the hospital for a month was my dad got me the um, star Wars Lego set. And I remember playing with these Star Wars action figures and like building this Lego set and it, it passed the time, it passed the time for me. And so to this day, I'm a fan of like little kids. I'm always like build something like you can, cause you have that sense of accomplishment. And so that's not something people aren't going to look at me and be like, Joanne, could you talk about how Legos empowered your recovery from injury when you were five years old? Like nobody's coming to me for that. In fact, people make lots of assumptions. No, I am not Irish. <laughs> you know, no, you know, it's it's like things like that where you're you're saying, like, can we go a little deeper? And by the way, let's ask people what it is they'd like to articulate when it comes to their philanthropic objectives instead of telling them what's expected of them. Because again, athletes are often treated like commodities when they are in their sport. Um, 
Kevin Durant fam very famously talked about uh, the use of the word owners and ownership to, you know, discuss people who are in control of teams financially. And his point was very strong. And, and I think about that often. It's so not only is this person going to own you, your contract, you're going to have to play, you have to work through injuries, you have to do all these things, but they're also going to tell you what to do with your heart on your days off. What are the philanthropic events? And, you know, that's, that's how we get better engagement and longevity. And so my recommendation to people who are looking to get athletes involved with something that they're doing, like if you're part of a nonprofit, you have a special event coming up, don't just go to a team and ask for the biggest name player. Go to a team and ask for the player with whom your organization will resonate the most. Right. So let's go back to Joe Staley, the guy who did the touchdown dance. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned literature, which made me think about him. His mother is a librarian, just like my mother. And um, Joe did a series of events that were focused on um, increasing literacy at the kindergarten level. They were called kindergarten kickoff, super fun events. The kids would get paper, they'd get to write their own book. We would publish it and it encouraged literacy. But the best part about that was here's Joe as an offensive lineman, huge guy, and he'd sit in a little kindergarten chair. And by the way, he's an amazing singer and he knows all the words to all the Disney tunes. So he would just like, I mean, the kids would be rolling on the floor laughing. And then before they know it, they're engaging in something that's related to literature. But now that's not the first thing you think of when you see offensive linemen. You don't go like, oh, you know what we should do is an early childhood literacy program. <laughs> like, but he did it better than anybody I've ever seen. How were you prepared to help make these decisions? Because, I mean, mm -hmm. you said you were a figure skater. You had a yes. car accident. Yeah. You went to Penn, what, psychology and Spanish. Yes. Right? <laughs> you went to law school. Yeah. Uh, none of that feels to me like it's pushing you in this direction. How, how did you, were you just a good listener? How, how did it, how did it kind of push you in this direction where you were actually in a position to help? I, I think all of it did. And it's interesting. I'll go back to being five years old. One of the, the benefits that came from this accident was I missed most of kindergarten, which would have been bad, except for the fact that, again, mom's a librarian. I grew up in Washington, DC. We had access to some amazing tutors. So by the time I got to kindergarten, midway through the year, I, I was ahead of my peers because I'd had like these amazing, you know, PhD tutors or whatever, my mom's friends. And, um, and I was reading books and whatever. And I remember showing up in class and the teachers, I remember this so vividly, the teachers asking questions and I have answers and I'm used to being in a one-on-one -on -one environment. And so I'm like, I know that. I've got that answer. Well, you very quickly become the unpopular know-it-all if you do that, right? But I, and I wasn't allowed to participate in most sports because of the injuries I'd sustained, but I went to a birthday party at White Flint Mall when I was seven years old and it was an ice skating birthday party and I'm skating around in circles and I'm like, this feels like something that doesn't use my arm or where there's a ball that could fly at my jaw. Like I could do this sport. And it became the outlet for me to use my voice and to be bold and like to just raise my hand and say, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Classroom wasn't so much that place. And that, that really continued. Now, when I was 14, 
um, my figure skating coach actually invited me to volunteer with a program she was running for Special Olympics. And so I was paired up with a girl my age named Tiffany. And Tiffany and I became like best friends. It was like, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you meet people and you're like, we are meant to be friends. Like we have so much that's like bringing bring us together. So Tiffany and I liked all the same music, the, the like bad teenage perfume, you know, whatever it was, like we were in it. Tiffany was being horribly bullied at school because she was in, a, in an integrated program that was making things really difficult for her to navigate socially. What do you and, mean by an integrated program? Oh, she, so she, uh, so Tiffany and I had almost everything in common, except she had one bonus gene. She had Down syndrome. And so her, the school, the public school had created a program where they were bringing individuals with intellectual disabilities into the mainstream classrooms, as opposed to having special ed, mm -hmm. because really to create some social connections and to help them learn from each other. Great idea and concept, but if you don't put the construct around it to provide support network on both sides, educate both sides about what this interaction will be. Um, you know, pre-teenage girls and teenage girls can be, can be pretty mean. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pecking order, you know, the ladder of like popularity. And it's, I don't understand how people can do this, but she was being bullied and being marginalized in her classroom by some girls who were not inclusive, not accepting of her. And yet on the ice, she felt at peace, she felt at home. It's the same way even now, if I put on skates and I skate around, it feels a little bit like flying. Like you just feel this sense. I mean, you know, from downhill skiing, it's like, like I loved doing downhill skiing too. Yeah. You feel like you're flying. And, and, and if you're somebody who has been told all the things you can't do or you'll never do, which you've been told, I've been told, Tiffany had been told. Everybody's and been then, told. Really, right. I mean, it's really easy to find people who tell you you can't do things. Absolutely, yes, because of and it, it's there's so many different reasons why they'll say it. you're short, you're tall, you're you're redheaded, you're whatever. I mean, you're you're the wrong everything. Um, probably a lot of their insecurity as well. Don't step yeah. out of line and make me look bad because I don't want to take a risk. Right, exactly. And so when you're being told that, but then somebody or something or some moment says if you harness this you can actually do great things with it. That's what I saw in Special Olympics. Special Olympics, um, where I, I worked there right after law school, I worked at their international headquarters. And there were, every single day, there were moments where I was like, the world needs to be here. Because there were, like there was this one moment we were filming something up at Sesame Street in New York, like actual Sesame Street, like actual, you know, Grover and, <laughs> and Big Bird were there. Um, and, I was standing with the mom of a young woman who was being featured in this, uh, this series we were doing. This girl's name is Katie. She has Down syndrome. And I'm standing with her mom and I just said, you know, what was it that brought you to Special Olympics? And she said, well, when Katie was born, we were unaware that she had Down syndrome until she arrived in our lives. And from the very first moment after she was born, we were told all the things she'd never do and all the pain and the suffering and how hard life would be. Special Olympics was the first organization that said, oh my goodness, look at all the amazing things you can do and she will do and she'll bring to your life. And, and this mom says to me, she's like, and everything I was told by Special Olympics turned out to be true. And all the things the doctors told me, those were facts, but they weren't how we were gonna live our lives. And so what I learned from all of that was 
if you have the ability to actually stop and listen to somebody and then to help them to articulate what it is they're kind of ruminating on, if you don't do that, that's a missed opportunity as well. I love foreign languages. I love listening to people. I love stories. But um, it's really about kind of taking a step back. And, and I think that's why I majored in psychology and Spanish. <laughs> Again, love languages, love listening and thinking about the way the brain operates. Um, law school was, a, my focal point was uh, public interest law and advocating for marginalized populations. Worked at a workers rights clinic where we translated documents for individuals who were monolingual Spanish speaking and had been used and abused by the system or were being threatened with deportation if they didn't do something. And, um, and it's amazing. I mean, I remember this one gentleman who came in for help at our workers' rights clinic at my law school. And he had done like two weeks of landscaping work. And then the guy he had done it for was saying he wasn't going to pay him. And you can't tell me I have to pay you. I'll get you deported or something. This guy comes in and he's just beside himself because that money was needed to support his entire family and his family back home and all sorts of things. So we sat down and we wrote the angry letter. You know, he told me what he needed to say. I wrote it out. We printed it on some letterhead. Off he went. He came back a week later and he had six trays of tamales. <laughs> I remember. And he was just like, thank you, you know, to all of us. Like, thank you, you guys. Look at what you guys have done. And I'm thinking to myself, all we did was we listened to a guy tell a story and then we wrote it down on a piece of paper. That's it. It was so easy. I mean, it took, Chris, I'm not lying. It took like 15 minutes for me to do that thing. Right. But what did it do for his family, for his life? Like, yeah, he got paid. And, and he was so grateful. And it, again, it's like, if you, if you don't get outside the box, I mean, this is, that you've been raised in, like, you don't know how amazing the world can be, but if you don't actually stop and listen to people's voices and you only know what's in front of you and you don't sit there and try to amplify theirs, then like, I don't know, we're, we're, we're missing an opportunity. We're missing a huge opportunity if, if that happens, right? But we do need people to help us, to help us find our way and to help us find our voice, right? I mean, you're talking about a couple of different things like being able to help guide an athlete into, into a situation that is going to be beneficial for that athlete and also beneficial for the community. Mm -hmm. And some of it is, is also helping the athlete to get to the point where they're able to, to produce, to, mm -hmm. to communicate on that. You know, they're not all, they're not all supremely talented, like your friend Joe there, who, uh, who can sing all the Disney songs, right? So, so there's that part. And then there's also the, the part of, of trying to find your way. So like one of the things that, you know, for me with, with One Revolution, with my foundation, our mission is to turn perception of disability upside down. Mm -hmm. But I think the approach, I'm not willing to be like Colin Kaepernick or like Megan Rapinoe or, you know, because one of the things I believe is that it's a separate group. And if I continue to beat you over the head with how you have to see me for how different I am, that, that I'm effectively pushing you away. And so one of my beliefs is that I don't want to make people wrong. I want to try to come and build bridges and find a way to find like, like you're talking about with your, with your friend there, uh, who, who you guys shared, shared the ice, you shared common experience, you shared bad teenage perfume, uh, which just made my <laughs> really just uh, ironically, the per I remember the name of the perfume, it was called Tiffany teen spirit. 
And she liked it originally because her name was Tiffany and the perfume yeah. was Tiffany. But Tiffany was a, was a pop star back in the Back 80s. in the day. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, but some of that too is, is finding the right place, but also helping the athlete to develop their voice and to be, to be comfortable within that voice. How difficult is, is that process to help mature, to mature a voice for the athlete? Because this is a lot of what you're talking about with athletes' voices as well. I mean, it's, it's a longer process. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've had many people ask me like, oh, well, how did you get close to such and such an athlete? I'm like, well, I didn't just like jump in and say, what can you do for me? Or what have you done for me lately? Or whatever the expression is, right? right. It's like, let's get to know each other. Like the moments, the moments when real change has happened has been when I've been observing how somebody is moving through the world. And then they seem ready to figure out what comes next. Not when I walk up to them and I say, hello, my name is Joanne. What are you going to do next? You know, like I, it's tough because from a, from a selfish or financial perspective, yes. Would I like to walk up to every athlete that I see in the world and be like, I can help you. I can help you make impact. Like, I I don't know. I, I, it's like any relationship you need to figure out who they are, who you are, what you have in common, where you can connect, where they can help you, where you can help them. Like there has to be mutual benefit in order for it to work for the long term. Uh, I had a professor and undergraduate, uh, Marty Seligman, who talked about points of connectivity and learned optimism and brilliant, brilliant man. But a lot of what he said that really, like a lot of what he said stuck with me, but I took a social psych class with him my sophomore year. And he talked about how you can figure out points of connectivity and how that results, how that creates lasting friendship. So it might be that, you know, you and I met and we started talking and we realized that we were both wearing plaid shirts at the time and you have hazel eyes and I have hazel eyes. And like, you know, and, and so there were a few things that like physically were like, okay, okay. Then we start talking, maybe our cadence of our speech is similar. Maybe we're both left-handed. Like, and then more and more, you start to find those things. Well, it takes patience and it takes long conversations to figure out that what I have most in common with some of the athletes I work with would never be guessed from the surface, from the outside. Um, it's funny, I work with, disproportionately, I work with a large number of athletes who are oldest children. I am an oldest. <laughs> it is an incredibly important part of who I am and how I move through the world. Why and is that? What, what, what differentiates you as an oldest? Well, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an oldest girl and I'm an oldest and my daughter is an oldest girl and oldest. I'm also the oldest grandchild of my generation as is my daughter. Um, and it, it's funny because I, when I was in college, I actually wrote a extensive paper on middle child syndrome because of what I saw in the birth order in my own family. And um, as oldest, we tend to have to set the standard. We have to, our parents are new parents. They're trying to figure out how to be parents. So they're making mistakes. We're there to like kind of help teach them. Sounds really silly, but, and so we take on this role of like, I'm, I'm the intermediary between parents and my younger siblings and I'm bridging that gap. So there's this like natural inclination to be a fixer, to be a leader, 
to speak up on behalf of the team, you know, and in, in our case, I mean, my sister and brother and I staged a protest because we wanted a later bedtime at some point in our childhood. And I, I can, like, I remember the, the slogan, which was, we won't take a shower till we get another hour. We were protesting taking showers until we got a later bedtime. <laughs> and we marched around the house with these signs and my poor parents, um, but. <clears throat> this is a stinking, okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, and my little brother was definitely going to be the worst of this. Right. But, um, but it, the funny thing is, is that I remember that as we developed all these things, it was dependent, like I was in the role of taking the initiative. So my siblings would follow and still to this day, I'm very, very close to my siblings. They will still, if I say, Hey, Dan, Laura, like, I think we should go this direction or let's get, let's get together and talk about how we're going to approach something. I mean, through some of the lowest moments as you grow older, when you, you know, you lose a parent or whatever, and like you turn to them, they're still looking at me. And so I look at the athletes I work with and all these oldest children, like I understand the burden that you have to be there for your siblings, to be there for your parents, to be the bridge, to be a leader, to be a voice, to set a standard, and when you fail, what's the message you're sending to your siblings? Um, are your parents putting so much emphasis on your success because they think that it's a determinative factor for how they're gonna succeed with your younger siblings? Like all these things, it's, it's a different degree of uh, a sense of responsibility. And I mean, obviously this is not universal. There are oldest children who don't have these characteristics, but for the most part, I'd say a lot of the, the athletes I work with they resemble that. And this is that point of connectivity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so now we're talking and I'm like, okay, I, I get it. I know. I mean, one of the early questions I'll ask somebody is like, do you have siblings? If so, you know, how many? And it's not that I'm weeding them out. I'm like, oh, you're youngest. I don't want to work with you. No, it's, it's more because I feel like when I start to ask those questions that I'm going to have a better sense of their mindset and their approach and how they're likely to take on this philanthropic journey. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm often wrong, but I'm often right as well. And I really prefer to work with people where there feels like there's a two-way authentic connection. Um, I think that's really important because if it's all transactional, and I, I would say this to anybody who happens to be listening, if you're looking for somebody to help manage your, your finances, to be your mental health and wellness therapist, to be your workout partner, like look for somebody where you feel like they're in it for you and you also care about them. Um, like you have to actually like people to be involved with them. Same thing goes for philanthropic investments is if you're not feeling it, if this cause isn't calling to you, then there are probably other people where it does call to them and you have an opportunity to figure out where your best use of your time might be. And, and that changes over time. I mean, I was, they like said, I was really into, this, you know, I've always been committed to Special Olympics. It's a big mission for me. But when my family was confronted with my dad having Alzheimer's, that became something I wanted to increase awareness around because my story around that is so personal. But at the same time, it's probably a good illustration of other people who have parents or loved ones with younger onset who are trying to figure out how to raise children and lose their parent at the same time 
And like, what does that feel like? So I can speak to my own personal experience. And because of that, I don't feel as well versed or I mean, talking about heart disease, like not, not as personally connected. So. Right. I mean, it was probably like, like your father's suffering Alzheimer's was one of the most personal experiences of your life, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was very, very close to him and I watched him slip away and I can, and I couldn't do anything about it. And, and somebody who's a firstborn type, a left-handed, you know, I know how to get things done type of person. Um, it's really, really hard when you're looking at something and you can't do anything about it. You, you don't have a cure, you don't have a fix. Um, and it, it's interesting because having worked within the Paralympic community as well, I've heard this many times, it's like the first thing that happens when you have an injury that is life altering is people are trying to tell you how to fix it and how to get back to normal when in reality, there might, you might have to just realign and figure out a new normal. And that's a little bit of what I had never navigated Alzheimer's with my father before. So I'm navigating it as I'm experiencing it. But in now, now that I'm on the other side and, you know, unfortunately my dad passed away in January of 2021. Um, but now a year and a half out, I, I have perspective to know things that I would have done, or I don't know, it, it's somehow empowering to be able to look backwards and say, hey, so if I had known then what I know now, here's what I would have done. And I would love to be your support network through this. And so I have regular calls with a, a friend who came to me through the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, he's, he's slowly losing his wife to younger onset Alzheimer's. And his wife is 52 years old, I think. And I, I mean, look, it's his wife, not his mother or his father, but I feel like I have something to offer to him. And it's just because, and it makes me feel healed to be able to say to my friend, here's something that I wish I could have done or I should have done. And so it's almost like that pay it forward concept. Like it's, it might not benefit me, but can it benefit the next generation? And so that's something that I talk about with athletes a lot as well, is what did you experience? What did you wish you had known? And so when I go back to that juvenile hall, those juvenile hall experiences, we would seek the guys who had picked another path when one of the primary paths ahead of them involved crime and getting involved with the juvenile justice system. Because we wanted them to come in and say to the, the kids, you know, this is what my brother did or my sister did or my dad or my mom. Here's how I was able to navigate a different path, but I wish I'd never even danced with this idea or I found myself in trouble and here's what I did to make sure that I stayed on track. So that's, that's as important as anything. Um, and that's one of the ways that I approach this individualization of philanthropy for high profile influencers and athletes is who are you? What do you stand for? And what's the unique story that you can tell that not only will help others, but will heal you as you're moving forward in your life, in your journey? Because I can't get my dad back, but I can help other people experience more joy with their loved one as they're going through it. Which, and for you also, 
your dad would have been the guy that you would have gone to to ask for guidance in how to deal with the situation. But because he was going through the situation, you couldn't ask him, right? So, so yeah. And people love to differentiate things too. They'll tell you, like, you know, anytime I would talk about, oh, my dad was Alzheimer's, they, oh, my great grandmother had like, <clears throat> cool. You know, <laughs> it's the, <laughs> like, I'm so sorry for your loss. Right. And so then that's the other thing is I look around and I say, am I being, uh, am I listening to you while I'm thinking about what I'm going to say about me? Right. Or am I actually able to sit there and take in what you're saying and figure out what the best result will be to help you move forward based off of my knowledge and experience, but not by putting my story into your life. And there is a difference there. And I, I think that's, something that I can uniquely offer, but I, having experienced it, been on the receiving end of it for 10 years of people telling me about their Alzheimer's stories, or when I had experienced some infertility at the beginning of my parenting journey and people would say, oh, well, I, this is what I did or you. And, and so when I was, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I had the best uh, doctor. I said, I said to her, I will not read a single book. I don't want to read what to expect because I know that my experience to be my experience. You just make sure to tell me when there's something I should know. And I'll show up for all the things and I'll do all the things I'm supposed to do. But if you tell me that I should only eat cheese on Tuesdays, I'm going to eat cheese on Tuesdays. I'm not going to do additional research because if I go way back, not only is my mother a librarian, but my grandfather was a librarian. My grandfather was also a Talmudic scholar. He was very learned. He was like Kind of the original nerd. I adored him. He was fantastic. But when he was about 85, Google first came out. I was in law school at the time. My grandfather was was very ill with the with cancer at the time. And so I went out to Philadelphia to spend time with grandpa. And I was like, Grandpa, you have to see this thing, Google. And I open up my computer and I'm like, look at this. And he looks over and he's like, hmm. he goes, you know, Joe, the problem with this is that people are going to have all of the information without any of the knowledge. So they're gonna think that they know what they're seeing, but they'll just take it at face value. And that's part of what I try to bring forward with Athletes Voices is don't look at an athlete and think, you know, the shut up and dribble comment. Like, don't, don't think you know everything about me or about them based off of what you've seen, because there's a depth in there that needs to be explored and each person's story is their own. They are not a Wikipedia entry. They are not an ESPN story. They have a story. And once you say to them, I say this to athletes all the time, you are the CEO of your life, of your story, of your career, and you get to decide how it's told when it's told. If somebody is pushing you because they will experience monetary gain because you're gonna tell your story at that moment, but you're not quite ready, then to me, that's a problem because the inauthenticity of that moment and that story might come through. And it's interesting, Chris, because I think like when I first saw One Revolution, I asked you a question, um, which was, there was a moment in your movie where you're kind of needing some time alone and you're asking for the time alone. <laughs> you're like, I just need to be alone. And everybody keeps coming up. They're like, Chris, how you doing? Great job. Blah, blah, blah. And, and like, when I watch you in that movie, I see your, from your eyebrows that you're like, oh my God, just like, if I'm, if I'm the people around you, I'm like, he needs to be left alone. Yes. And like, 
your need to fill the space right now does not take priority. So that's, that's part of it. It's like, are we taking the time to actually read what the person needs at that moment? And the second a, <clears throat> an athlete retires is not the moment to pounce on them and be like, what are you doing next? But it's also hard for them to imagine what it's going to be like until they're in that moment. So that's a pretty delicate balance as well. It's how do you prepare for something that you don't want to have happen, but that is inevitable. But then once it happens, how do you make sure that you have the support network you need when you haven't been preparing for it? It's interesting. And I feel like we've been talking about this the whole time. Yeah. But, but, but sort of getting to the essential question of like, why do we need athletes' voices? What's different about an athlete? Mm -hmm. What's different about what they can contribute? And, and why? I mean, it's, it's a terrific question. And actually, it's interesting. I was, I was listening to the radio yesterday and an Eminem song came on. And yes, my 12-year-old was in the car. And yes, we did start talking about the lyrics. And I said to him, I said, what I really respect about Eminem was he was telling his story. Like this, what a gift to be able to express something. I work with a woman who is a Special Olympics athlete. Her name is Amanda Heronoff. She is one of the most gifted poets I have ever known. Mm -hmm. And when Amanda, she just texted me a poem yesterday. <clears throat> it just flows out of her. She's, she has autism. She has um, a number of different conditions that have made it more difficult for her to fit in in a classroom. But yet the way that poetry flows from her is so beautiful. But what I want more than anything is to be able to connect Amanda with the right influencer who will start to share that because their platform is so big. And because when they validate something, like it's like when Kate Middleton wears a dress, it immediately sells out in the UK. Um, it's the same thing. If, if an athlete demonstrates something if they wear a specific <laughs> pair of sneakers, but more importantly, if they show what it's like to go out and, and be, be here to help somebody to, to do the right thing, um, others are likely to follow. Like I, I've seen this, we did a polar bear plunge for Special Olympics a number of years ago, and I had two 49ers athletes with me. This is where you go in the middle of winter and you mm -hmm. jump into a really cold body of water um, to raise money for Special Olympics. Great. So we're out there and these two guys look at me and they go, um, neither of them knew how to swim. Ooh. Yeah. But they were all in. They're like, you know, shout out to Norman Price and, uh, and Dennis Brown who were like, doesn't matter. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. So they, they go, we were, and, and by the way, we were by the Golden Gate Bridge. And if you know anything about San Francisco and the water, it is really, really cold. So we go and everybody's sort of hanging and it hanging out on the shore. And Dennis goes, you know what? Let's just do this. And down to his little, you know, swim shorts, runs in. Norman runs right after him. And then 200 people run in and do the polar bear plunge. And then it's funny because the firefighter was like, uh, gentlemen, you need to get out or you're going to have hypothermia. Like it's time to get out of the water. <laughs> you know, Because they, they were like, they were socializing and, and they were there with all these people who had followed them literally it's the opposite of a burning building but they followed them into frigid water and when you when you can create momentum 
where people will follow you into frigid water in the San Francisco Bay, where who knows what was floating in the water, then imagine what you can do if you're speaking up or speaking out and using your voice to amplify something. Like people will follow their heroes anywhere, even if their heroes leading them in a bad direction. And so that's what I encourage athletes to do is to find their voice, to figure out the best way to magnify that, amplify it, and then to lead people into frozen water around a good cause because they have the opportunity to make a huge difference. And that's what's unique about athletes. I, I brought up Eminem because I think it's unique with musicians and artists, <clears throat> but in some ways, athletes, we're all trying to be armchair athletes. We watch sports, we play sports, we think about sports, we read about them um, more so than we do with almost anything else. And so when you've got people's attention, do something with it. That's the bottom line. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for amplifying the voices of athletes, giving them an opportunity, helping to, to, to get them pointed in a direction where they can where they can run into frigid water for the best of purposes and get people to follow them. It's just, uh, to me, I mean, obviously I've been an athlete my whole life, but it's also, it's where my heroes are from. I, my fifth grade teacher complained to my, my reading teacher complained to my parents that I only read biographies of athletes. <laughs> yes. I resemble that. <laughs> so does my son, by the way. <laughs> and my parents were like, he's reading. It's all good. Yep. We're fine. And, and, and my sister, who's a librarian, this is a generational issue here. She says she's a teen librarian. She always says, if a kid's reading, they're reading. But I, I did not love physics when I was in high school, but I had a chance to do a project on um, centripetal force and the sport of figure skating. Mm -hmm. Never forgot it. Because it was personal. And right. I think that's a lot of what you're saying here is that it is that personal journey and it's sharing that personal journey and sharing that personal success as well. You know, as an athlete, it's like, oh, this is where you're amplified and that's where people are in. They're like, yes, this matters and we're going to follow you and we're going to make a difference. And, and it, is, it is taking that risk at times. And some of those athletes who've been willing to take the most phenomenal risks are, are, are the ones who are, who are my heroes too. So thank you so much. I'm, I'm just happy to be on this path with you as well to be a part of what you're doing. So thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Chris, I'm, I, I've said this to you so many times. I don't even remember when we first became friends because I feel like you've always been a part of my life. Um, you bring so much goodness to the world and any experience or journey that I'm leading or involved in or following, I want you to be a part of it because I think the world of you. So thank you for inviting me and thank you for, I don't know, valuing what I'm trying to bring to the world. Oh. a lot. Well, you're bringing a lot to the world. So thank you for that. And thank you for your kind words as well. And thank you to all of you for listening. I hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. The greatest gift that you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. Tell your friends that it's going to be another great show. Come back next week. Please follow us. Please like us. And we will see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.